0: Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week we'll start with Tony Auerstler. The Museum of Modern Art in New York is showing Auerstler's Imponderable, a 90-minute film shown in an immersive so-called 5D environment, as well as archival material related to the film from Auerstler's own collection. The film mines Auerstler's interest in experiments in technological advancement that didn't quite work out as well as occult phenomena, to offer a kind of alternative history of modernism. The film is richly informed by Auerstler's own life history. For example, his grandfather was Charles Fulton Auerstler, a journalist and author who teamed up with Harry Houdini to campaign against fraudulent mediumship. Wait till you hear Auerstler tell us all about it. The exhibition was curated by MoMA's Stuart Comer. It's on view at MoMA through April 16th. Aursler is a multimedia and installation artist whose work often examines and uses new technologies to explore topics such as facial recognition, paranormal phenomena, and the relationship between, say, multiple personality disorder and mass media. Among the museums to have devoted exhibitions to Aursler's work are the Chrysler Museum in Virginia, the Stedelijk in Amsterdam, and the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York. On the second segment, historian and curator Anne Klassen-Newtson discusses World War I in American Art, which is at the Pennsylvania Academy of Fine Arts through April 9th. The exhibition looks at how American artists responded to and engaged with the war, both in Europe and in the United States. Newton co-curated the show with Robert Cozzolino and David Lubin. The exhibition's fantastic catalog was published by Princeton University Press. Amazon offers it for $60. bucks. we will have a link on manpodcast.com. But first, Tony Auerzler after the break it is easier than ever to explore art historical texts from the comfort of your home with the getty research portal this online catalog provides free access to books and journals from libraries and museums all over the world including new editions such as the art institute of chicago's ryerson and burnham libraries the herzog august bibliothek in wolfenbüttel and the Warburg Institute Library in London, resulting in over 100,000 volumes available. To explore the Getty Research Portal, visit portal.getty.edu. Deanne Arbus saw The Divineness in Ordinary Things. SF Moment invites you to explore the formative years of this iconic photographer's unique vision at Deanne Arbus in the Beginning, an exhibition of over 100 photographs, many on display for the first time. In the beginning, considers Arbus's early interest in portraiture, which would come to define her career, and reveals her evolution from a 35 millimeter format to the now widely imitated square format she adopted in 1962. Deanne Arbus, In the Beginning, is on view through April 30th at SFMOMA. Get tickets at sfmoma.org. The Pulitzer Arts Foundation exhibition Medardo Rosso: Experiments in Light and Form is one of the most anticipated retrospectives of the season. I'm thrilled to announce that our next live audience taping of the Modern Art Notes podcast will be with the show's two curators, Sharon Hecker and Tamara H. Schenkenberg. Please join the three of us at the Pulitzer on Saturday, February 4th, at 11 o'clock. Admission is free. Hope to see you there. And we're back. Tony Auerstler, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast.
1: Hi, Tyler. Glad to be here.
0: Before we get into your work, I want to start with the exhibition at the Museum of Modern Art of things you've collected related to technological advancement and occult phenomena, which is a fun thing to say, and the way you think of and present it as an alternative history and depiction of modernism. And one way of thinking of some of that material is ideas and systems and whatever, things that didn't work out. Were you drawn to the material that you ended up collecting because it was visually engaging, because it dead ended and, and didn't become modernism, or for other reasons entirely?
1: Well, I was attracted to this material in, for many different reasons. You know, my collecting began probably when I was a kid. But to digress a bit, back in in the late 90s, I started thinking about. kind of history of technology and thought that there might be a history available to a multimedia artist that uh, was not available so easily in in history books or in museums. So I started to kind of dig around into different histories, you know, going to electronics museums as I traveled around or history of television museums and, and reading kind of chronologies of technological developments which started to piece together what might have been considered art that would have been made while everybody was making kind of sculpture and painting you know that someone else might have been making uh, something an example like the uh, x-ray or something like that and and what that might mean for culture and so The collecting really began as uh, research, much like you would do for any kind of a project. So I kind of just grabbed this material, kind of kept it around the studio, stuffed it into closets, kept notebooks, things like that. And it started to take a shape of its own over the years. For the original kind of serious collection, I, I printed a kind of timeline which coalesced in a project called The Influence Machine which happened in 2000 in um New York and London
0: and which continues to happen in other cities around the world as a as an installation.
1: Yeah, which was a, quite a surprise and and a delight to keep that thing going. It was just uh, in Edinburgh, Scotland. So that that was the beginning and then You know, that was very project oriented. But what became really interesting to me was the way that these technologies could be interpreted culturally. Because there's a kind of sweet spot when, say, uh, photography was invented. You know, how is it going to be used? It it has to become codified in one way or another to to make money. And I kind of love that moment. You know, you have that with television or film photography, this kind of very elastic, expandable dynamic around the technology, which then sort of tightens up to, you know, the the constraints that are Kodak eventually appears and you have the family photo industry. But in the very beginning, in the example of photography, somebody picked up the camera and, and decided to uh, take pictures of what they thought were spirits, and a guy by the name of William Mumler in New York City began to um, circulate spirit photographs, which you or I might call a double exposure. But it was um, economically quite enticing for him to call it spirit photographs. So this kind of highlighted something that which occurs over and over again with technology and inventions and kind of advancements is there's a kind of logic or skew. And this often may even happen in kind of invention process itself. You know, there's always a kind of leap of faith when any kind of invention takes place. And that's what I'm really interested in. You know, how do we get from point A to point B and how do we get to, you know, from, the spirit photo to Instagram or something like that. And along the way, there's a lot of kind of diversions, digressions, things that might seem completely absurd now, but were perfectly logical at the time. Of course, in the case of spirit photography, you know, we had just been uh, involved with the Civil War and there was a lot of death. And people, of course, looked for alternatives to the classic religious approach to, to that problem, you know, to the problem of loss of loved ones and so forth, and kind of manifests itself in movements like the New American Spiritualist Movement, which happened in 1848. And that was also connected to a kind of another very important technological development, which was the telegraph. So, you know, that that piece the influence machine kind of strung together numerous inventions coming from uh you know photography all the way up to the computer and kind of looked at this uh reaction to the nascent technology and its uses which kind of ricochets around the unconscious and comes out in in fascinating ways now Is it so interesting to know that at one point people believed that there was a kind of spiritualist telegraph that people could get together and and form a seance and kind of communicate with the dead directly as a kind of reaction, as almost a folk reaction to the invention of the telegraph, which in some sense, it was the first form of telecommunications to exist on the planet. You know, there have been like kind of smoke signals and more almost flag systems that people used along the coast for signaling at long distances. But the telegraph really had the effect of the very modern effect of collapsing space and time. So information could move from one point to the other instantaneously. And that is a kind of magical effect in a way. You know, one of the byproducts of it is that it questions the systems by which we perceive reality. And those moments, I think, are quite exciting as uh, in terms of cultural production.
0: The answer to my next question may be the influence machine, which is one of the coolest things I can think of. We'll have video of it um, or an installation of it, maybe two installations of it on, on manpodcast.com. As you consider these objects you have collected over many years... Do you think of them as discrete objects of interest from which you can gain meaning and understanding? Or do you consider them as having a narrative that you can pull out of them and build a history out of?
1: Let me just roll back a little bit. All my projects kind of come out of these steeping myself in various research Systems and whether it's visual, language, sound, different things like this. And then, and that's how I kind of come up with something like the influence machine, as I was saying before. But it's just the way that everything has worked for me over the years. So the research is a big part of it. And as time went along, you know, I started to show various parts of the collection or talk to people about it, you know, whether it was the ufo photos or you know that actual x, x how x-ray tubes eventually became tv sets and things like that and various characters involved in these transitions became really interesting to me so i started to graft on as anybody would you know if you have 10 objects on a table eventually you're going to start to tell a story about it or at least i am so these kind of narratives emerged in my head with connecting this various material, whether it was through family or history or the way they kind of intermingled. And then at one point, I was speaking with Tom Eccles, who had produced The Influence Machine in 2000 with James Lingwood at Art Angel, and Eccles was at the Public Art Fund here in New York City at the time and we did a number of projects over the years and i would talk to him about this and that in in the collection and uh he was of course you know involved in publishing the timeline back in the day and i was talking to him about this collection and he's a collector himself uh, of 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 actually toy soldiers so we always kind of talk about these Kind of things that were, you know, slightly strange activity that we would do as a hobby or something, you know, and I'd say, yeah, I got another spirit photo here. And he would ask me, well, how many of those do you have now? And are you going to keep, keep getting them or not? Like, And so anyway, this story that one of the stories that emerged out of that was um, a wonderful connection to my grandfather, who was a writer, a mystery writer, and uh, then eventually a, a magazine editor, and then became quite well known for writing religious books. He converted to Catholicism and wrote The Greatest Story Ever Told. And in the beginning, he was a magician, an amateur magician in Baltimore. And as he developed as a writer and became more and more influential as an editor and writer, he continued to reach out to you know, people in the magic field, including Harry Houdini, who was a personal friend of his. And since he was also a mystery writer, he had a great love for Arthur Conan Doyle. And so anyway, as time went by, he became involved with these characters and corresponded with them and did various things. Now, Houdini was a, uh, a well-known debunker of psychic and spiritualist activity claiming that most of it was fraudulent. People may or may not know this about Arthur Conan Doyle. He was a spiritualist and a kind of believer and researcher in all manner of kind of paranormal, I guess what we would call now paranormal activity and a kind of, a bit of a magical thinker, which was kind of strange for a uh, character who brought us this this uh, indelible rationalist detective you know who's one arguably one of the first forensic thinkers and then in, in his personal life you know he was a believer in ghosts he was also involved in a lot of in promoting many things including the Cottingley Fairies which he published a book on spirit photography which he published a book on and he was a, just involved with all of this material, uh, some of it so far-fetched that it's hard to believe, but I encourage people to read, you know, perhaps his book on the fairies, which is extraordinary. So as part of my archive, I had some material which Arthur Joyle sent to my grandfather to try to convince him of various phenomena like... Um, ectoplasm, you know, spirit photos, as well as, as the Cottingley fairies. So this material was something that I kind of grew up with. And as I, you know, was working on these art projects, I talked to my parents about remembering some of this material, because I kind of grew up with the spirit photos. They were in in a little closet in the basement of my parents' house. Anyway, so fast forward to, you know, 1999 and my dad says uh hey i found something for you and he hands me this sheaf of of, of paper and inside it are the one remaining fairy photo the others were given away to kids in the neighborhood a few other extraordinary images and text with handwriting on it from conan doyle directly to my grandfather like Professor so and so displaying an enormous ectoplasmic blur, <laughs> etc. Here's the fairies as discussed in this article, and and was also a debunker himself. So one of the things he did was when he got this material from Conan Doyle, he noticed that um, you know, Conan Doyle had a system for proving whether a spirit photo was a real photo or a fake, because uh, this was a kind of part of the whole process. It's a little bit hard to understand now looking back, you know, why anybody would think that psychics were so important that they had to be battled or dealt with in any way, shape, or form. But if you look back between the two wars, that's not the perpetual wars that we're in now, but the uh, World War I and World War II. There was a, a kind of extreme loss of life and a, a kind of challenge to a lot of the classical social means of dealing with that. You know, a lot of structures were called into question, the patriarchy, the hierarchy of the church and so forth. And this, of course was reflected in the art of the time but it was reflected in in many other practices anyway not to go too far afield right yet about that but um in terms of this kind of small group of photos that i inherited from my dad and mom from my grandfather you know my grandfather was firmly on the side of the skeptic you know he had been to he he had been to more than 500 seances in his life which is an an incredible amount now he claimed never to have believed anything in it that was supposed to be paranormal in any way in other words he said i've never saw anything that i couldn't explain in one of those seances and at the same simultaneously He became a magician, which is kind of interesting because he, you know, uh, one of his relatives took him to a lot of seances when he was a kid. And he he said, oh, I grew up under the seance table. So he kind of you get the idea of this very clever kid who saw tricks happening and kind of was looking behind the curtain, so to speak. And somehow that led him to, you know, sleight of hand himself. And he became an accomplished, fairly accomplished magician himself. And so that's the kind of background of the story here. And what happened was he made some fake spirit photos, sent them to Arthur Conan Doyle.
0: This is your grandfather. who? who
1: yeah, sorry. Who... Yeah, I'm jumping all around here. It's a compl- complex story. So years later, when my grandfather was an adult and corresponding with, with Conan Doyle, he made some fake spirit photos himself sent them to Conan Doyle to ask if Conan Doyle could use his own personal verification system to, to show whether these photos were real or not. And Conan Doyle was convinced that they were real. And then my grandfather sort of punked him and said, well, they're not real and here's how I made them. And he went through, you know, and then he published that in a, in a kind of debunking book. And this kind of, Bunk, debunk, parrying back and forth in a either kind of extreme or kind of playful way was existing in many forms, whether that be in the stage magic of the time. Now, it's hard to imagine that stage magic was a popular idiom, but it was in the 20s and 30s no longer you know it hadn't been banished to las vegas and kids parties yet but it was a kind of semi-popular form of art i guess you could say and along with these sort of seances and so forth the magicians kind of incorporated this debunking of uh, psychics and mind readers into their act and this gave them a kind of or they felt a kind of moral authority, you know, and also allowed them to play with a lot of the tropes that that the psychics and spiritualists were playing with publicly. But to go back to your narrative idea related to these objects, as you can see, I'm just spinning out one meta narrative, which comes out of these collections. But um, this particular story of the psychics and trying to prove whether one had the high ground or not, or who had the correct belief system became a very interesting personal story, a kind of family story, but also something that was happening on on a kind of large scale in those years so that was a kind of story that came out of those objects, which was you know not- not that many people were would be aware of, and my friend Tom Eccles was quite taken with the story between these particular characters, all of whom were pretty well known in one way or another. And then it kind of falls off into this wonderfully murky zone of, of the psychics who kind of practiced around that time.
0: Before we, we, we started talking on tape, I mentioned that we were mostly going to restrict our, our conversation for this week's show to subjects kind of coming out of the archive and your collecting and and the related work. And and so I think most people listening to this week's show, you know, know the the 30 year arc of of, of your work. What they might not know is that you went to CalArts. And CalArts may, maybe not as much when you were there in the late seventies as now, but still to, certainly to some extent, I think, is kind of famously a theory driven school. The things you just recounted in your your family history and your present interests related to them are not necessarily or even remotely theory-driven things. So I don't mean this as a cheeky question, even though it's going to sound like one, I, I'm afraid. Did you find it difficult, or how did you maintain your interest in kind of these polyvalent histories, even in the midst of what I presume was a fairly theory-motivated or driven art education?
1: I think growing up Catholic... Always, you know, in questioning that and looking at that system of Catholicism, kind of set me up for a um, a mind that was always going to be fascinated by systems. And I started to look at, you know, art belief systems as similar to pop cultural belief systems as mimetic viewing systems, whether that be cinematic or virtual reality systems and kind of just looking at systems in general. So not really a problem for me to kind of move from one to the other, which I know is, is disturbing for a lot of people, but I think it allows for a fresh approach to, um, some of this material and looking at it again. And that's something that, you know, Stuart Cover and I, and, uh, Beatrix Roof and Tom Eccles and I discussed around the archive in general is kind of how some of these things bounce back and forth, you know, because various belief systems, they're accepted at one time and then they're, you know, they become diminished or they, they, they have a different kind of perspective. You know, you just turn the gem one way or another and you see the refraction differently and that's kind of the fun of art history for me and, and the fun of kind of cultural studies for me. As long as, I, you know, you're not too, it doesn't burst your bubble too much to do that. You know, it's it's a fun way to do it. And, of course, CalArts was just an amazing place to study. I mean, I owe so much to CalArts and, and the uh, teachers there and the environment and also my fellow students who went there, Who many of which I'm still quite close to. But there was always a kind of battle of various uh, thought systems there as well. You know, there was a kind of very hardcore conceptual art approach. And then there was a different kind of more humorous approach to conceptualism, you know, whether. But that's the way I mean, it's the way that artists forged their identity, you know, and I look back at that and it was a different eye now, you know, to think about, well, why that was important at that time and, and what's happened, you know, to even the notion of a movement, you know, is there even any kind of an art movement that one can trace? Cause at various moments, you, you know, people say like, Oh yeah, this is what was happening. You know, pop art uh, was happening. Well, If you go uh, really look at history, you see, well, pop art was just one tiny thing happening, you know, largely in a couple of big cities that happened to be uh, powerful at the moment. You know, but if you look around, you look at other systems that were happening, you know, Fluxus, the uh, what was happening in Austria was quite good with the actionists and and things like that. You know, there's just – but you understand, well, okay, it, it, this is one thing that gets into the the museums, which is like a painting and then a sculpture, and people understand that, you know, but they don't want to see the films of the actionists, for example, or the, or the kind of detritus of the fluxus or something. But that stuff in my mind is all equally as important, and that's how you really make the picture.
0: My guest is Tony Aursler. We'll be right back after a break. The Hammer Museum in Los Angeles presents Jimmy Durham at the Center of the World. Durham's first North American retrospective, this unprecedented exhibition of nearly 200 works by the artist and activist is on view from January 29th through May 7th. See the Hammer Museum's newly renovated galleries filled with Durham's sculptures, video work, and installations most never shown in Los Angeles. Also on view this season, the first in-depth museum exhibition dedicated to the drawings of Jean de Buffet, a selection of works by Liz Kraft from the Hammer Contemporary Collection, and Hammer Projects featuring work by Simon Denny and Kevin Beasley. Details at hammer.ucla.edu. Hammer Museum. Free admission and free for good. The Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University presents Nina Chanel Abney Royal Flush, the first solo exhibition in a museum for Abney, a 34-year-old artist from Chicago who was identified by Vanity Fair magazine as one of the many artists championing the Black Lives Matter movement. The exhibition is a 10-year survey of about 30 of the artist's paintings, watercolors, and collages. Through her monumental paintings, Abney gives viewers the chance to take part in a meaningful conversation about issues of racial violence and social justice. She uses bold shapes and colors, and the language of today's digital and celebrity cultures, to take on controversial topics. She confronts those parts of human nature that seem easiest to ignore—prejudice, stereotypes, and biases. She has said that her work is, quote, «easy to swallow, hard to digest» on view February 16th through July 16th at the Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina. Visit nasher.duke.edu slash abney. And now back to my conversation with Tony Auerstler. When you were at CalArts, Mike Kelly was there, Jim Shaw was there, they were applying, you know, this is a gross oversimplification probably, but they were applying ideas about systems to pop culture. You were, um, you just mentioned you were kind of applying ideas about systems to, to the material we were talking about earlier. Did you guys ever get together and were there conversations about how you were applying similar ideas to wildly different material?
1: Oh, there was a lot of crossover all the time. You know, Mike was really like a brother to me. We were collaborated quite a bit. We had a band together and, and Jim as well. You know, we lived together and played music. You know, everybody kind of, you know, when we were quite young, everybody. Uh, and this went on for quite some time. You know, there was always a dialogue a close, close dialogue, but we also kind of helped each other on projects and things. And um, so there was a, an enormous amount of crossover and, you know, we used to go to the swap meet to look for art supplies and things like that and trade musical ideas and make things together. And uh, there was a lot happening there. There was a lot of discussion about how far artists went at the time and how much further they could go and things like that. So uh, yeah, it was very rich, uh, rich dialogue. And I, I still feel like I have that with, with a lot of friends, you know, if I see what they make and, and sometimes, you know, Mike's not with us anymore, but as we know, you know, this one of the strange things about art is that you can still have a dialogue with, somebody you know when they're no longer there it's it's just a shame that he's not you know he was still had a lot of work in him I thought but he left so much for us it's it's just always going to keep giving so but you're right about the the connection to pop and one of the hallmarks of our group I think was um, is that we're interested in in pop cultural systems and that might sound very highbrow Because, you know, like the system, but I think looking behind the system has always been something I've been interested in and and the artist you mentioned also quite interested in that. And California, you know, has a, at that time anyway, seemed to be in the 70s and early 80s was definitely just a wonderful place for that to happen. And, um, And I was lucky to be there for that.
0: Lots of artists and lots of media were looking at systems. I mean, new topographics, photography, which, you know, pretty far divorced from CalArts and say the things you you three were making, you know, is also substantially about about the manifestation of systems. That great that great Lewis Baltz quote that that is my favorite art quote probably of all time about how you can't tell if, you know, in, in, in light industrial parks, if they're making pantyhose or Megadeth, you just trust the system and let people build stuff in it. Yeah.
1: <laughs> but I think what you know what maybe differentiated our group is that we were interested in talking directly to people and weren't afraid of humor and and real ugliness and kind of try to expand, you know, try to sort of take things out of the white cube, so to speak, you know. And that's why we were really interested in the idea of crossover putting things on the radio performance rock music could it become art was it art why not you know humor comedy so in that sense we were interested in playing with the systems within the language and without the language of the system
0: yeah the first generation of of california-based conceptualism is really funny humor is fundamental to the work. And I think that kind of in today's art world, when we're kind of into the third or fourth generation of conceptualism, and it's become a kind of a commercialized language that isn't humor-informed or motivated, that it's easy to forget how funny a lot of that early work was, whether it's, you know, Barbara T. Smith or Eleanor Anton, or what, you know, that there's a lot of slyness there. I'm interested in a couple of artworks of yours from the many years that I suspect in, in in some way come very specifically out of the things you've collected or were at least informed by them. Um, and there are three I wanted to ask about in in particular, and one of them is a piece from around 1990 called Crypt, K-R-Y-P-T. And in an effort to quickly describe it all, and we'll have images on manpodcast.com, but it's a piece that encourages a viewer to look into a mirrored box decorated with symbols that feel vaguely occultish. I'm not sure if they refer, you know, if they're specifically cribbed or not. And there are are flickering lights, and inside there's a a TV or a a cathode ray tube running images that kind of reference everything from drug-taking to kind of alternative spiritual universes. Is that an example of kind of You know, fairly early on, you're beginning to translate some of your interests into into an object.
1: Well, crypt. It's it's very interesting that you came up with cryptcraft as a kind of something to look into because I began making videotapes as an extension of painting, and I constructed sets and props and puppets and what are all manner of anything that could create any kind of locomotion from a bird to a worm to a finger, anything was fair game as a, as a performer inside the TV box, you know, including myself clothed or not. And so, you know, this was my kind of way of saying, you know, like, let's move beyond painting into something that was a little bit more in the vernacular and television was my vernacular at the time. So starting with that in the 70s, I also began to play with the way video related to physical objects and space props that I made that were on the TV, then were displayed with the television and the video and so forth. And that kind of, you know, a lot of artists were interested in that at the time, this kind of like pushing in and out of, of, of a media space, you know, kind of bursting the kind of dimension between those two worlds of of the mimetic space and real space and so i began to also make what i thought of as immersive installations you know basically rooms that you would walk into that were kind of worlds so to speak and cryptcraft was one of them i'd make you know two or three a year and they were You know, done very modestly with often painted sets and, you know, just plywood and um, glass and uh, mirrors kind of material that that pretty much anybody could find. But my approach was to kind of take the television image and kind of remove it into some kind of an object that formally was one of the projects that, you know, I think a lot of video art was interested in terms of materials you know like how to get away from the corporate box of the television and take this wonderful technology and move it into a into a you know as a plastic medium like squeeze it out of the paint tube into you know the studio in one way or another and so I did that as you mentioned you know by taking like a TV and just sticking it into a mirror box to see what would happen, you know, and then kind of like painting on the mirror, or cutting into the mirror, drawing on the mirror and constructing these objects, I guess, so that were somehow in between installations and, and uh, sculptures and who knows what they were. But cryptcraft was one of them. And that was shown, I think, in the Hague or in Amsterdam in the Hague at the worldwide video festival back in the day, because uh, at that time it was not so easy to show um, anything that plugged in art galleries or museums or whatever. And there were these things known as video festivals, which all of us idiots would travel around if we could, you know, and, and participate in. It was quite a an honor and a nice way to meet other people who were, like minded explorers of that material, but cryptcraft that specific piece I'm kind of bringing myself back to that i at I shot a lot of uh tab i would go to people's yards and and shoot the kind of tableaus they set up in in their front yards you know these kind of little gnomes garden gnomes and and re- reflecting balls and and looking at this kind of homemade lawn displays and so forth, and kind of mixed that in with interviews with people who were designer drug chemists testers actually, which is kind of a strange sentence to say. But a fellow I knew who um, tested drugs for a designer drug chemist, and I had him kind of describing these various experiences, and and also was doing a lot of research into uh, pesticides and things like that at the time. So it was this kind of stew of pop cultural things I was interested in at at the time. And the occult wasn't really much part of it, but that gives you a sort of an idea of uh, some of the subject matter I was interested in, sort of toxicity as a metaphor, you know, kind of equating television as a, as a kind of hallucinogenic material or something and where the individual or the viewer place themselves in this kind of narrative stream you know escapism or creating one's own environment whether it be through you know these simple lawn ornaments or or kind of inducing a whole new perspective through these kind of designer drugs and and that sort of range of personal expression i guess
0: you know i, I should have asked that before i, I asked the question on, on your website the piece is called crypt craft as you as you referenced it but european art magazines from the early 90s call it crypt k-r-y-p-t is
1: is there a reason for well, that
0: well there
1: is because <laughs> that you got it and i'm very impressed that you could dig that that arcane fact up but the crypt is a piece that was then was sort of in in within this bigger installation, which had a number of elements. So that's how I kind of worked for many years as I would do a kind of larger installation that was conceived as maybe five or six parts that you would walk into or maybe 10 parts. And you'd walk into it and the lighting would be controlled and so forth, and there would be different sound sources and also uh, very interested in using kind of chance operations to kind of recombine the material so that it was not really linear. And so you'd have five or six or maybe 10 different sources that would be changing or interacting, phasing is the word that we used at the time to kind of create this dynamic system, you know, that would be ever, I kind of love the idea that every time you walked into the exhibition it would be a little bit different, you know, because it you would get these various juxtapositions, which of course would happen with painting anyway, uh, one way or another, because you'd be in a different mood when you walked in to see a painting show. But certainly in in a multimedia show, if, if it's, you know, you have like seven half hour things playing back at once at different rates, you know, it's always going to have a different relationship to one another. So that kind of, the the mathematics of that I found was very exciting, you know, like sort of if you could create like the fantasy would be that you would create a kind of never ending story or experience, you know, that would be always evolving. And that's kind of something I've been interested in for years. But the crypt piece came out of that. So and then there was probably a couple of different versions of that and that would have been shown somewhere else and et cetera.
0: A few years later, you made a piece called Shroud Spin, I think 1994. We'll have an image of it on manpodcast.com It's it's. I'm going to describe it terribly, but it's a textile uh, with a, a, a pink and green floral pattern on it, held in the air by a metal hoop on, onto which an image is projected. It seems like a pretty clear engagement with Late, you know, mid to late 19th century occult practices and and representations, and even with the spirit photography we were discussing earlier, is 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 that what what this piece is? Is it as direct as that?
1: At that time, I was really absolutely immersed in multiple personality disorder, as a as a kind of result of, I guess, a media memes, for lack of a better word. So it doesn't come out of the uh, spiritualism in, in much of a way, but more out of psychology. I was reading quite a bit about hypnosis and abreaction and and this notion of multiple personality and kind of relating it to the invention of film and, and television and the notion of immersing ourselves in these kind of technologies at one point you have to say to yourself well, well why is it that we spend more time watching television than we do anything else except sleep i mean this was this statistic that came out in probably the late 80s or something so we're going back in time now of course that that's going to be replaced by uh you know phones and ipads and computers and and so forth or a combination of these mimetic technologies which will soon include the goggles but to go back to your question at that time i was thinking a lot about this some theorists connected channel surfing and the notion of empathy for these electronic characters of television and and movies as a way of of sort of expanding our our identity which makes pretty good sense to me and in, in terms of okay rehearsing for life in general you know through these through this sort of sedentary uh activity of of absorbing like thousands of hours of of narrative at one point you have to ask well why do people want to do that so this is a kind of question that narrative evolutionists are looking into now and have a lot of interesting insights into. But back then I, with that body of work, I was thinking a lot about this, of course, erroneous idea of multiple personality, which the way that it went was, uh, in 1957, I think it was the three faces of Eve came out and won and somebody won an Oscar around the movie, which is a story of, a. Uh, of a kind of simple woman in a rural area who develops like a split personality, and then it's a kind of thinly veiled, you know, story of of liberation in my mind. You know, somebody trying to break the change chains of a of a very banal life, and also to kind of expand them, you know. Expand their notion of what it, what it could be to be a woman, and this is a kind of subtext of the uh, multiple personality situation is that, you know, on the one hand it was associated with illness and victim culture, but on the other hand there's a subtext of of liberation and and questioning the kind of patriarchal system of Freudian. Uh, analysis and so forth and looking at a different way of creating the self, you know, more multiple changeable self, a self which doesn't have uh, one particular core, which I think is really appealing and could be behind the whole, you know, development of these technologies in the sense that, you know, they have to have some sort of purpose. But around that time, that's some of the thoughts I was digging into and um, I did a number of works which related to multiple personality. But I should also mention that multiple personality was never really accepted by the AMA and it was also developed largely through pop culture. So it started out with a story like the three faces of Eve in the fifties. And then by the nineties, when I was making that work, there was a famous case where somebody, I believe it was in the Midwest somewhere, eventually sued their doctor, which it turned out that it was thought that through the hypnotic practices of abraction, which was to kind of put somebody into a trance in a medical situation to get them to kind of go back or re-experience the traumas of the past, was actually causing people to to become multiple personalities in in the sense that they developed more and more personalities through this process and somebody eventually sued a doctor for this and then the whole idea of multiple personality kind of evaporated from the pop cultural front but it was never really even accepted even though there were you know, millions of TV shows, movies, and uh, books on the subject. So that was kind of, in a way, that does connect to, I think you're, you're spot on in the sense that, you know, it, it's, again, I was kind of analyzing these systems and the systems, you know, kind of probing for the faults and what the values in these faults were and why they were kind of provoked, you know, collectively in the sense that's, that's something that's fascinated me for years.
0: Let me fill in a, a couple things. The actress who won an Oscar in The Three Faces of Eve was Joanne Woodward. And I should have mentioned this at the outset at the outset. Kind of the early to mid 90s is when you started projecting faces onto ovoid shapes and then the ovoid shapes were attached to, you know, often attached to say dolls or doll-like forms. And I think people will remember that work. So finally, and skipping into the near present a little bit, a few years you started working with or playing around with, might be a better word, facial recognition technology. How do you or do you, for that matter, reconcile interest in 18th and 19th century approaches to technology with also making work about much more recent technology. Is that dichotomy of interest? Do you try to mash those things up? Or for you, are they just completely separate investigations?
1: You know, the project that's up at the MoMA now is, of course, uh, until mid-April, I believe. But it looks back in time in, in the sense that it takes place in the 20s and 30s. And, you know, but while I was making that project, that was also working on these facial recognition projects and became really fascinated with that because I, I, I'm always a little bit scared with these more historical projects. You know, they lose a little bit of connection to, to the moment, you know, when you have to talk, you know, sort of set the stage, like what happened in between the wars, you know, and which wars, et cetera. There's a little bit lost in terms of the vitality and maybe connecting with people, which I really love, you know, to, 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 to think about, you know, that, you know, on Snapchat or something, people have these kind of facial recognition things that kind of connect and everybody understands that, that there's a kind of burning issue at the moment, you know, when they're actually playing with the thing that you're talking about when they're thinking about yeah i just went to my cash machine and there is a camera i always notice that there's a camera in there and it's got a picture of me and i went through security at the whatever and i noticed there's a camera there and hey there's cameras everywhere where's all those what's all the footage doing with those cameras where is it going and uh, you start to think about well facebook also has uh You know, this facial recognition aspect to it. And and on your phone, you know, your pictures are being sorted and tagged by um, they're actually being identified by you and your friends and clustering them together. And then they have the geo locations. And, you know, so this is something that people can relate to a lot more than they can to a seance in the 20s necessarily looking at at what's happening right now has always been exciting to me and the, with facial recognition i think in terms of art what's very interesting is that the notion of portraiture which goes back forever in art as a as a practice and as something that we've needed to have and and wanted to have for various reasons is now being opened up to a new a, a new perspective, and that is that, you know, the old portrait would have to do with the surface of the face and and kind of insights into somebody's technology through visage and, and expression and lighting and so forth and chiaroscuro. And now with facial recognition, we've, we're connecting our portraits not only to uh, a kind of cyber artificial intelligence kind of these sorting systems which is the beginning of a kind of artificial machines looking at us regularly but it also connecting us to the big data which means that our portrait can now be expanded into you know our our anything that can be aggregated online can now be connected to your portrait. So it's not all about the surface. It's about the deeper mine of information that's available about the person, you know, whether their, their, their bank accounts, their education, their health, their searches, their preferences, their cultural inclinations, uh, so forth. And that's all there in facial recognition. So,
0: You know, you made a series in 1990 called Surveillance. I don't know if series is the right word, but it's it's, you know, the kind of spotlighted the ubiquity of surveillance cameras Is, is and in that group of work, there isn't a clear suggestion of where that data ended up or what was done with it. Is your interest in facial recognition technology now kind of maybe in your mind or not, where that ended up, where that data ended up going, a conscious nod back at that work from a quarter century ago? You
1: know, I started looking a little bit at at surveillance and, of course, being a video artist, you know, when they had the, the cheap surveillance cameras came out, it's like getting another tube of paint for a painter, you know, he's, right down to the hardware store and got some of these little cheap cameras and start playing with them and also start thinking about well what do they mean culturally they're more about territory identity and and sort of passive aggressive marking of boundaries and so they have this kind of all-seeing eye but that's very you know almost like a, a Almost as though a farmer had had it with a, with a scarecrow or something you know that used to kind of scare away criminals or, or something like that, or man the edge of the uh, territory. And, but there was no notion when these cameras first came out that 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 they could be interconnected in, in the sense that or, or would have any kind of extended memory and that you know of course with the internet it changed all that and i think that's you know i i don't even want to sound like a uh, techno I, it, I guess i'm sounding like i'm i'm really in love with technology it's just that i think one way or another i i think it's just marks the age in which we live and and it's for better or worse it's a kind of subject matter and material that's that's filtered into my into my work Those early surveillance things were really much more about kind of military and crime and and kind of sexual in the sense that they were about voyeurism and uh, like that. But I think now we're on a whole different level. It's all that plus many, many other things in the sense that it's really biographical, you know, what the possibility of facial recognition just the amount of data that you can have on a person aggregated, you know, through that, it, it's incredible.
0: You know, it's interesting that you mentioned the psychosexual crime-related association with surveillance in the early 90s. I hadn't thought of this until just now. But, at you know, more or less the same time you're making surveillance, Lewis Baltz is making his Night Watch which features not just surveillance cameras, but I think a sex doll and large photographs of open windows and lit apartments. And, you know, that kind of really draws that line. Well, Tony Auerstler, thank you so much for speaking with me.
1: Thank you, Tyler. It's been a pleasure.
0: The Inner Circle Galleries at the Hirshhorn in Washington, D.C., stretch more than 400 linear feet. For her largest work, Lynn Myers has made a monumental site-specific wall drawing that encircles the museum's second level. When Myers works nesting one line beside another, she welcomes and magnifies the imperfections that arise naturally from her process. Tiny ripples become waves that pulse with energy. Get more information at hershorn.si.edu and get caught in the current. The Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego presents... Dimensions of Black, a collaboration with the San Diego African-American Museum of Fine Art, at its downtown location through April 30th. Drawn from the museum's holdings, this exhibition of more than 30 works by African-American artists from the 1960s to today traverses crucial interests and perspectives that have shaped the art of our time. The collaboration presents a series of accompanying programs throughout the exhibition. For more information, visit mcasd.org. Welcome back. My next guest is Anne klassen Knudsen, one of the three co-curators of World War I and American Art, which is at Philadelphia's Pennsylvania Academy of Fine Arts through April 9th. Newton's catalog essay, Hidden in Plain Sight, World War I in the Art of John Marin, Georgia O'Keeffe, and Charles Birchfield, is one of the best I've read in several seasons. Anne klassen Knudsen, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Hi. Did American artists have a vastly different response to or engagement with World War One than European artists did?
2: Yes, American artists had vastly different response to World War One than European artists. You know, people forget that the war started in Europe in 1914, and it started for Americans in 1917. And we thought we were going to stay out of the war. From 1914 to 1917, we were going to be neutral and out of it, and then suddenly we are in it. But we were only in it for 18 months or so, so it didn't have the long-lasting, really hard, hard effect on Americans in the way that it did Europeans. And the casualty rates in Europe were so much higher than they were in the U.S., not to diminish the number of men that we lost on the battlefield, which was really significant, but they just not the millions that you saw in Europe. And we had... Our argument for our show is that every American artist that lived during the war had to respond to it in some way or another. So there were artists who were for the war, against the war, and it was pretty controversial, the war. There were pro-German there were pro-French, there were people who thought we should stay out of it, and there were people who thought we should stay in it, and artists really kind of mirrored the variety of reactions. And the other weird thing about the the kind of U.S. in the war years is that you had artists, impressionists, established impressionist artists like Child Hassam and stodgy old muralists like Kenyon Cox, all these guys who kind of made it in the art world and were kind of waning and older, Making art at the same time as you had upstarts like Marsden Hartley and John Maron and George Bellows, who was sort of more in the middle there. So you had impressionists, you had modernists, you had avant-garde artists, you had the whole gamut of artists working in the same space kind of being snarky with each other and responding to this war with their own visual styles.
0: Responding to the war was a bit of a challenge for them because in some ways, and quite immediately as soon as America became engaged in the war, the federal government targeted artists.
2: So this is what people don't know about the war, that the Espionage and Sedition Acts were passed in 1917 and 1918, and it basically criminalized anti-war speech. And the federal government, and nobody knows this, people think that this happened much later in the McCarthy years, but the federal government started to target artists early on. If you go through the National Archives and you look um, at the FBI files, which was called before, it was called the FBI, it was called the Bureau of Investigation, and you look at the files during the war years and you search with the term artist, artists pop up all over the place. And they're linked with words like capricious, and poor, and easily manipulated by the German enemy, and oh boy, they can draw stuff that, that is potentially, you know, security threatening for the United States. I mean, it's crazy. And the artists they targeted, like they, in one of these files, I see that John Sloan, John Sloan was just a kind of a radical avant-garde artist. He wasn't for the war, but he was no security threat. And one of these very official files said, this guy, John Sloan, if we get into a war, because it was right before the war, we recommend him for national detention, you know, for national custodial detention. I mean, it was crazy
0: couple other great examples. What happened to Assam when he was sketching boats on the Hudson River?
2: Kyle Hassam was the most patriotic pro-allied artist, We one one of, one of many that we had. And he, he was very involved in the preparedness movements, which were kind of triumphs by Teddy Roosevelt before we got into the war. So he was a big patriot. Lots of red, white, and blue impressionist renderings of New York City with um, military marches going down Fifth Avenue. Well, he was sketching boats which were coming into the harbor, and a lot of them had this wildly modernist-looking camouflage design on them, and he was sketching them, and he was arrested. And John Maron was arrested, and neither were, obviously, security threats.
0: There was somebody who was walking on a beach who was... Also harassed, although at the moment I can't. John Sloan's
2: wife was harassed in Gloucester. Now, remember, the other thing that freaked out Americans w- was, you know, in 1917 and 1918, U-boats, German U-boats, were coming and cruising up and down the East Coast, and you could actually see them. So people were on heightened alert, and there was one German spy scare after another on the New York Times headlines and the New York paper headlines. So people were really scared. So there was this great fear that artists who were working, you know, painting on the shore, painting the water, might be signaling to the Germans, which was crazy. That didn't happen.
0: The way the American federal government reacted legally to crush anti-war speech that you just spoke about, there's a great book about the same thing happening in Europe and especially in, in the UK, Adam Hochschild's To End All Wars, which details how vibrant and active the anti-war movement is in the UK and its ties to to feminist movements and labor movements and how um, as soon as wars start, that all goes away. And and the same thing, of course, happens on the continent. And and what we get out of that is, in art terms, what we get out of that is data, which is artists inventing an in-war anti-war movement, something that UK and US officials were Substantially effective in in suppressing. So, when how willing are artists in America to engage World War One overtly, and how important might it have been for them to do it kind of subtly?
2: Yeah, I'm less familiar w- with what was going on in Britain, but what and what's crazy is nobody studied this. Nobody has studied this. So my first clue. You had the Masses magazine with the radical artists like George Bellows who turned, John Sloan, Boardman Robinson, Robert Henry. And they were very anti-war until we get into the war and the Espionage and Sedition Acts are passed. And then they're completely silent. And, like, why is that? Well, they were afraid they could go to jail. And I wonder if Britain did this, too. The U.S. hired 250 – well, they didn't hire. They got 250,000 basically vigilantes, volunteers, to work with military intelligence and our FBI to ferret out sedition and espionage across the country, and especially target artists. So you had neighbors spying on neighbors, church people spying on church people, co-workers spying, you know, so you were scared. And the reason I realized that this was happening in the artistic community was because there'd be a line here or there in a biography, like Borden Robinson's biography, biographer from 1946 said, you know, he had to stop his anti-war speech because the court of public opinion was really taking its toll on the family. And then John Sloan's, one of John Sloan's biographers said he had to do the same thing, and Borden Robinson. And then I start seeing that these artists are leaving the country. They're going to Mexico, or Rockwell Kent's going to Alaska, and then, and then on. And so I'm like, what is going on? So they didn't, and then George O'Keefe, you know, they sort of were in their own pockets. Nobody was banding together to fight this. And then, of course, the federal government put the masses out of business, which was this it wasn't an anti war magazine per se, it was a radical magazine and they you know, they took shots at everybody, but they did they did take on an anti war stance and the federal government shut them down in August nineteen seventeen. So there was really no other than the socialist a cohesive kind of anti war movement within the artistic realm. They were all scared. And John Maron said, my God, I was investigated. I was in Massachusetts painting out in the woods, and they wanted to know what I was doing and why I wasn't gainfully employed. And he said, you know, if you weren't in a uniform in 1917, it was pretty scary. And so nobody's recreated that culture and environment to my satisfaction in the U.S.
0: Well, your essay, which is extraordinary, looks at how American artists, and we're going to go through a number of them here, and we'll have all the relevant images on manpodcast.com. Your essay looks at how a number of artists made work that was engaged with the war or war-related imagery, but which, in the context of what you just said, is pretty carefully neutral, not anti-war, not pro-war, just now. And Marin's a great example. There's a great watercolor from MoMA, that might be a good place to get into how Marin engaged time and place?
2: I thought, okay, so uh, when we started this project, I thought we have the big four, basically, or the artists who we know tackled the war in one way or another, Sargent, Bellows, Hassam, and Marsden Hartley. But I thought, surely all these other artists that lived during the war, like Marin, for example, had to have been affected by the war. So I started to look at his work, And I see that his kind of famous biographers have said, you know, the war didn't affect Marin, but his work went really abstract. And I thought, you know, that might be a clue. And it did go very abstract. So I started to dig in. And the only way I could get to why – and the – the biographer said the reason he went abstract during the war years was because he was influenced by modernist uh, artists coming into New York City from Europe, and also by the writings of Arthur Wesley Dow on modernism. And I thought, you know, I think there's something more to it. So I started to, my first clue was I started to look at his letters. And he, in his letters, he slept to Alfred Stieglitz, who was kind of his, patron or underwriting him
0: who we should just quickly point out was, was German.
2: German but living in the U.S. he was also of concern to the U.S. government John Maron writes to Alfred Stieglitz I'm ob- for three years I'm obsessed with the war I can't get enough of the war and it horrifies me and he said I'm reading the papers two or three times a day and you know I can't get it out of my head and I thought well if he can't get it out of his head it's probably in his work as well So I found a little watercolor in the National Gallery in Washington that Marin did of a camouflaged ship, and you had a lot of these naval ships coming into the harbor, and the camouflage design on them was really modernist, was really cubist. In a particular way, they used very particular forms that were kind of half moon crescent shapes and zigzag forms to obfuscate the movement of the ship in the water, so that subs couldn't figure out how big the ship was or how fast it was not how fast it was moving, so that they could hit them. Well, I start to see these very shapes in Marin's abstractions. This crescent shape, you can see it. You can see it in the MoMA and the National Gallery has a number of abstractions by by Marin at this. From this time, so you start to see the zigzag and the crescent shapes. So I thought, okay, so he's in, and the same colors. He used the black and white, and there was this light blue and light green, and he's using the same colors. So I thought, okay, clearly there's some influence there from the camouflage designs. But then, but then I'm looking at these images, some of these other images. Which ones? I can't remember which the. Uh, they're all called abstractions of some kind. You you asked me about the MoMA. but there was another one, a couple of others. That had, it had this zigzag shape, but it had meandering paths running through them in white, chalky colors, and they're all very abstract. but I felt like, I felt like I was definitely looking down on these abstractions, and I thought that might be a clue. So I looked in the newspapers to see if there was anything visual that was coming in with the stories about the war and discovered, which I should have known, but rotogravure photography was becoming hot at this time. It was a tech, half-tone technique that made reproducing photographs in the paper fast, quick, and
1: cheap.
0: Which had not been possible before. I mean, for decades, American newspapers had no images, and then when they had images, they were... Sketchy. Magazines began to have be able to print photographs in a rough form in the 1890s and not really well until the 19 aughts. And we're talking about newspapers in 1915.
2: So we have that going on. And these. These, this rotogravure photography is coming in to the big newspapers twice a week in some cases. They had something on Wednesday and something on, two, on Sunday where they'd have a whole couple of pages of images of war-torn Europe, battlefields and towns that were bombed out. And one of the things that was also very new that rotogravure photography brought to Americans was aerial views of these bombed out villages and countrysides in France. And so this looking down, it was, and Americans had not seen the world this way before. So when you're looking down at these battlefields, the trenches from a mile up or half a mile up look like little zigzags. And then the chalky roads running through, they just circle around the town and circle out again. And I thought, you know, I wonder if this is an influencing Marin. And then the kicker was, I guess this is the one in the MoMA, I have to go back and look, was in one of Marin's watercolors with these roads that were clearly running in and out of towns in his abstracted form, there was a little, the road looped around something in a very characteristic, uncharacteristic Marin way. And this little loop, I thought, I kept coming back, it took me about three months to figure out, I thought it was referencing something, but I finally found an aerial view in a roto review image during this time of that same loop. And it was a trench, trenches looped like that around artillery guns to protect them. So I started to see that over and over again in the aerial views. And so Marin was clearly influenced by looking at these aerial views of the battlefield. And these aerial views were completely new to artists and Americans, you know, so they were... Definitely looking and intrigued by them. And so I'm, my argument was he's clearly being influenced by these images, and his abstractions are taking their lead from them.
0: Yeah, it's one of those things that once you see it, you can't stop seeing it. The MoMA one features an explosion at the bottom center of the watercolor. It's called Lower Manhattan Composing derived from, uh, from Top of Woolworth, and you pair it in the catalog, and we'll try to get both
2: of these. He was also very much you know, fascinated by the explosions, because so many of the images that came through the, the newspaper were of big, vast explosions. And that, I think that was probably my first clue that Maren was looking at these things, because there was an explosive element to these abstracted views. And I think he takes that explosive view from above and uses it over again for the rest of his life in his images. But I argue that it started during the war.
0: So here's, here's Marin making abstractions but hewing reasonably closely to his source material. Georgia O'Keeffe, on the other hand, it seems wanders farther away, or further away, one or the other, but it's a, it's also in the category of once you see it, you can't stop seeing it. And the picture you use in the book is of American soldiers with their little helmets on in a trench, and George O'Keefe must have seen pictures like this
2: so George O'Keefe, I think I came to after Marin, and everybody who writes about her also says that her images from the war era from nineteen fourteen to nineteen twenty are the most abstract of her life. And clearly there's a, there's a pattern here of artists going abstract during the war years, coding uncomfortable feelings or something. So I thought, okay, she must be looking at some of these images too. So a lot of these early abstract images she was doing in the desert or in Texas in the Southwest, and people paired them with, you know, with the boulders in the canyon she saw. But she would do a number of these images of boulders rolling around in canyons, and she would tighten them and focus on them. And sure, they look like boulders. But another image that came through the rotogravure photography, well, let me back up for a minute. She was also writing Alfred Stieglitz letters saying she couldn't get enough of the war. And she, too, like Marin, was reading newspapers two or three times a day and just, just reading and sponging up as much as she could about the war, and she was equivocal about it, etc. So, I another motif that came through loud and clear in the Rodeographier photography was images were images of guys in trenches, and the trench the sort of trench technology was brand new to warfare, digging way down, and then and the view above of all the men with those rounded World War I helmets in the trenches from above was kind of a gorgeous photograph. It would look like a series of beautiful kind of balls rolling down a, um, an alley in some ways. So you could see the more artful pho- photographers coming back to that again and again. Well, I argue that George O'Keefe was also attracted to those images, and they inf- come up and are in- inflect her abstractions, particularly the images of boulders and canyons and things. And I can't remember what I have in the book because there were a lot of, one of the images was stolen. I talked about one's at the Eamon Carter, another's at the National Gallery, I believe.
0: We'll have on, on the website a 1915 watercolor at the Met, and we'll have contemporary images that the, the show which you just de- described. You know, one of the things that is inherent in your essay, and probably more than inherent Is that you are in a sense proposing or insisting upon an alternate history of abstraction that abstraction doesn't happen in the United States as the result of painters making kind of formal decisions and pushing the medium forward and you know the id and the ego and the superego and all these kinds of things you're arguing are you arguing that abstraction happens as a response to the suppression of speech, and that historians need to look at that a lot more?
2: Oh, my gosh, I am. And and the way we've looked at abstraction before just seems overly determined, and too kind of neat and tidy. And it's not really life. It just, you know, it doesn't reflect kind of the chaos and the serendipity And the things that just happen to you in life and how you absorb them and sort of spit them back out again. So yeah, I'm not, yes, I am definitely that. And I also think, I I really do want to explore more this idea of going abstract when things get difficult and trauma happens. And why that is and how many other artists have done that. And I I just feel like I'm just at the very tip of the iceberg on this.
0: Anne Klassen-Nutzen, thanks so much for talking with me.
2: Tyler, it's been a pleasure.
0: That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.